0: Well, first of all, I want to thank um, the invitation to come here, uh, started by the the group that was at uh, the last retreat in Guatemala, the five-week retreat, so thank you. Not too many people showed up, but uh, <laughs> other people did. And uh, number one, I, I, I'd i like, my from my heart, uh, uh, both above and below and, and in between, to thank Laurel for... Uh, inviting us all and putting this on and uh, I know that Laurel worked uh, very hard and continues to do so to make this happen and um, thank you very much it's, it's been great so for every, every bit of it I went snorkeling today and went in the water and um, already did two uh, photographs of two species of diatoms this morning or today and uh, it's magnificent here so and uh, Pardon? What was the oh, it was actually very good this morning. There's a beautiful little reef out here. And uh, full, of, full of... full There's always things to see. Yeah, full of things. So it's, it's marvelous just to be out in the ocean to water and to swim. So I hope you have a... I hope you have. I, I, I have every confidence that you'll have a wonderful time here. And uh, I'd like to um, mix... So my plan is to mix uh, the uh, teaching of Dharma, because some, some of you are new, some of you are very old with Dharma, and uh, some of you are in the middle, and um, that doesn't mean that um, it isn't uh, wonderful to get a refresher all the time. In, um, the basics are the highest teaching, by the way, just to let you know. So if it sounds like the basics, it's because the basics are the highest, they sound simple, and they are, but they require um, very deep um, training and uncovery to, to see that they are the, the, the fundamental basis. So because we are in such an extraordinary place, actually every place is, but this is, um, I think for many of us, this is such a deeply relaxing place because of the heat, because of the water, the salt water, um, being able to float in water. want to, uh, this, uh, this period, this 14 day period is uh, blend the teaching of Dharma, especially focusing on mindfulness and attention, which is so fundamental uh, with um, an approach to natural history uh, the study of natural history that is more uh, less uh, modern day science, it is actually among some but more artistic science, which is practiced by not just amateurs, but also practiced by professionals. So I'm going to mix uh, teachings in with readings from natural, professional natural scientists that practice the art of attention, the art of mindfulness, and uh, have had fantastic success because of it, and have beautiful ways of describing how they do that. And in doing so, I want to be able to teach um, broader, vaster uh, art of mindfulness, in a natural setting, and use your diving, and your snorkeling, and your swimming, and your walking in the bush, or whatever you're going to do, as a way of seeing that um, uh, the most fundamental principle of meditation, liberation, uh, is there, and is a form of natural natural history. Eventually it becomes a natural history of phenomena, and the natural history of the mind. So that's where we go as opposed to cataloging taxonomy. But while we catalog, as we do taxonomy, and as we find out what things are, we also bring the same principles to bear uh, that you need for liberation, for freedom. So, I may as well start. For all beings, wisdom, compassion, and non-clean awareness... May all beings be free. May all beings be a state of loving kindness and good health. And, of course, I'm very curious what your questions are. If lovely It's a small group, we can then um, take time to uh, look at the microscope. You can also bring some samples of uh, small things. You'll be seeing big things. You can also bring, um, as long as you're not picking off pieces of coral and sponges and capturing fish and that sort of thing, but... Uh, you may find some, some pieces lying around uh, that we can look at. But the first place I want to start, and also please ask questions. The first place I want to start is, um, there are many things that are required for meditation. But meditation as focus is simply not enough to gain emotional freedom, so you have to remember that the entire basis of dharma, whether it's nat- natural history dharma, whether it's Buddha dharma, whether it is um, a teaching somewhere else, doesn't matter. Uh, is most all, everybody who comes to teaching of dharma meditation wants liberation? They want happiness. Is that right? Okay, and and uh, f- as it says in many old texts. For every teacher, there's a student. Another way of saying that is that there are hundreds of thousands of ways of teaching Dharma, liberation. There are many, many paths. Because there's many, many different kinds of beings with different conditioning. Uh, And today, we have a lot of people that have grown up in a modern scientific society uh, that do not relate very well. To an ancient um, uh, Eastern, if you wish, or even Western uh, cosmology. Uh, sometimes even the terms are bewildering. Uh, so many people find the approach uh, in uh, to uh, liberation, to freedom, uh, through, uh, if you want, natural history. What what is there? It's a very very powerful, um, very powerful vehicle today, and. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't uh, get you out of the professionalism or the deep amateurism of uh, meditation. It doesn't matter how you do it. Whether you're um, a Christian mystic or whether you're a natural history um, graduate student or professor, uh, no matter what you do, you're going to have to learn the art of mindfulness and learn what mindfulness is. And unfortunately today, this is a theme of a talk I gave uh, a weekend in Vancouver, unfortunately today, or unfortunately, because there are a lot of good things happening today, a lot of the idea of what meditation is today is uh, under the guise, if you wish, which has its great merits of bare attention mindfulness, which has become a marketed term. So we always have to be careful when we encounter marketed terms that we're not being sold or given one very little aspect of a vast, um, thousands of years old tradition. Yeah? It's very important. So that's one of my aims, uh, this retreat, if you call it a retreat, a living retreat, if you wish, uh, instead of an enclosed, encapsulated retreat. But one of my aims is to uh, show you over many days um, which I was doing in, in Vancouver recently is the vast, vast scope of mindfulness and how it it opens to every facet of liberation. And and uh, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, uh, and it's in the text, is it turns out that the Buddha, uh, during his lifetime, was also having a problem with this issue of people being mindful but not liberating. And he used the term uh, mitcha uh, sati, which is uh, wrong mindfulness, or uh, ignorant mindfulness, or really wrong view mindfulness. And that's not that you can't have wonderful experiences with being attentive. But if you don't become curious, and you don't ask what it is behind all of it, then liberation doesn't occur. But you do have pretty cool experiences. And you will feel high as a kite. And your attention will get better. Your concentration should get better. But the very root of afflictive emotions will not clear. He was very clear on that point. So even during his day, he was having the same problem. And some of the Zen teachers, great Zen masters, had the same problem matter of fact, the fifth patriarch eventually stopped all his students from meditating on their bum. He said, no more sitting. You're, you've become sitters, but not, yog- not uh, enlighteners. Uh, many of the great uh, Zogshan and Mahamudra masters of India and Tibet also said the same thing. You can end up in what's called stupid meditation, which can be very blissful. But it's not aware in what it can do for your freedom. It's important. In the same way, you could be a very good natural historian and be cataloging the names of all kinds of creatures and making photographs, but never understanding what's behind it all. Never caught on that all that life is doing something. So you could ask the question, what is all that life doing? Why all the diversity? How did it happen? Of course, that led to the theory of evolution, which is marvelous. But to ask the question, what's behind it all, uh, leads to insight. Whereas um, being in a state of wonder and being in a state of attention without uh, a sharp mind that is curious and wants to know what's behind it all, the big questions, uh, becomes blissfully dull. Blissfully in a good state. But subject to emotional crashes. So you have scientists and you have natural historians who have been um, extraordinary, but manic-depressive. They have great bursts of enthusiasm and then crash. Or it only lasts a short period of time while they have the energy. And the same thing with people who enter the spiritual or the uh, meditational um, domain is they have a very um, short burst of energy because it's cool, the experiences are nice, and then when the going gets difficult uh, and the curiosity disappears, they're not interested anymore. Give me something else. So they're always going around and shopping for the most curious curios. So that would be like on the coral reef, going around and shopping on the coral reef for the biggest, most fearsome, most interesting, most colorful fish but missing the most sp- fantastic little things before your eyes happens all the time. Do you see that shark? And someone else was playing with a nudibranch, little nudibranch um, little flatworm for an hour. Other else was after shark or after a really beautiful um, angelfish. But uh, right beside the angelfish or the, or the nudibranch was a beautiful coral. Corals. Corals are corals. See? So attention isn't just attention. Attention needs to be taught. Paying attention needs to be taught. The art and then what to do with it. And the, uh, the teaching of Dharma is very specific about that. But it's wonderful also, and I'll give you the title of the book. Um, I tried to download a copy for Laurel, but I don't think it's ever arisen out of the ether. But I'll give you a copy of, or a title of a wonderful book that I'm reading of writings on um, natural history, but it's all about attention. The vast scope of people who discover what attention is and how, and how beautiful Uh, It is. So that's the mission uh, for this two weeks. And it's a very light retreat in the sense of, um, uh, I really want you to relax. And salt water and the ocean and bathing in the ocean and having this kind of heat and this, for most of us, extraordinary place uh, is an extraordinarily relaxing um, place to be. The other thing I'm going to ask you to do something that uh, you may not ever have done in a retreat, but um, make notes of your discoveries. It's very—it's a wonderful way of increasing attention. Is uh, keep a, a list of creatures that you've seen. So look them up. I think you have. Do you have book look up books in- over the there? So so do we here. Is uh, make a daily list and don't leave it till the end of the day, but make a daily list. Uh, of the names and maybe even the habit or where you saw it. Um, The best, of course, is to draw it. That's the very best. You'll never forget it. If you take uh, a half an hour, an hour to draw a few things, you will probably never ever forget uh, the name and what that is. Uh, That's a long traditional natural history Uh, and is still taught today. Probably isn't taught enough. But is the art of uh, drawing specimens. Draw, you say, whether it's a tree or a a nut, because um, drawing is different than taking photographs. Uh, If you take photographs, it doesn't necessarily bring you uh, as close, usually doesn't, as drawing. If you spend four or five hours on Photoshop and then uh, looking up different papers and so on, yes. But even then, you miss details if you don't draw. So um, there's my recommendation. Number one at a minimum is keep a... uh, Not a species list. That's hard to do. But you might have a species name. Be suspect about species, by the way. If it says a species name, know that it's likely changed. Or that it's under revision. Or uh, there's five more... Uh, under that that they aren't seeing. So, it's, so yes, put the species down, but don't... It's better to put just the genus and then put a... I put, always put a bracket around species as a question mark. Because on DOS, you know, when you had a PC, you couldn't put a question mark in a file, so I just put a brackets. So, um, so collect. Um, collect things. So I'm going to tell you something that uh, often sounds a bit weird. And I, I get this response sometimes by people who've meditated and go, this doesn't sound right, but it is. Uh, make collections. But don't just collect and look at it and put it on a mantle. Uh, find out what it is. And, fi- and, and the use of names by naming things isn't really anything of itself necessarily, But the naming is our first um, hook into making discoveries. So you think, well, name is illusory. Yes it is, but a name is the hook that you use to communicate with yourself and communicate with others. If you say, well, it's the orange thing out there. That doesn't really help. It's the orange blobby thing that I saw um, floating that doesn 't go very far, and the dive master may not be able to help you at all. Did it sink was it on the was it attached to something? did it have fins uh, did it blow bubbles oh, you know oh, i don 't know so so uh, naming is is really important getting the hook the first hook is a name, and then uh, making notes about where it was, what it was doing, and so on so We're going to use the art of natural history, old-style natural history, uh, and also modern natural history, which is still practiced by many, of making observations, but using that to train ourselves in the art uh, of liberation, because you're going to have to do the same thing. So having experiences in meditation will not constitute liberation finding out what's behind experience will. So, if you lived on a coral reef and you, you studied a coral reef every day, there will come a boredom period where you've seen the same things over and over again, and you may say, uh, well, that's enough. But you're, you're not asking the question is, what are all these creatures doing here? Why a coral reef? What is... What is life on a coral reef doing? What's the big picture? So in the same way, when you have experiences and you have experiences that change your life uh, or uh, beautific experiences, uh, really a question is, is, are you asking the essential questions that move it to a place that frees up the organism or are you missing the essential questions? That's called insight meditation. The other is Samatha, which is tranquility, which is very nice, which you need, because it feels good, but doesn't necessarily have the power to free the organism from the tyranny, if you wish, of afflictive states, illusionary states, paranoid states, um, scattered mind, and all the kinds of things that... You know what I mean, right? I don't have to make a long laundry list of... and you'll squirm, you go. Know. So that's the mission for the next couple of weeks, and um, maybe daily. We'll see, but maybe daily get an opportunity to look at the uh, look. Well, we can look at a computer screen instead of the microscope lenses, which is nice, and show you maybe things you've never seen before. Um, I also want to mention to you about paying attention. Is it turns out that Most of what there is to see uh, on the planet, you can't see with your eyes. Just let you know that. 99.9% of all that you see uh, is there, but you're not seeing what's there. And then number two, in terms of creatures that are organisms, uh, at least 99% of all the creatures on the planet, you cannot see without a microscope. So when you're looking around and you say, I'm seeing life, you may be seeing 1%, maybe. I would say probably less than a half a percent, even less than 0.1%. Way far, way, way less. One of these days, maybe I'll try a calculation. But uh, when you go to the ocean, you swim in the ocean, those big things like little snails, those big things like little snails, not talking about sharks and, and barracuda, or coral, pieces of coral. Those are big things made up of little things. And and what you're swimming through is is very little water, in fact. <coughs> just thought I'd share some organism with you. It's about 12 feet, so it's just about right. The spray is about 12 feet, just so you know. You know, they've been around for a lot longer than we have, so they're very intelligent. Very, very intelligent. So, next time you go swimming, I just want you to consider that when we go up and look today under the microscope, what you're swimming in. You're not swimming in water. That's actually, there's not much of that. You're swimming in life. You're in a soup of life. And uh, when you come out and you rub your body off, to dry it, you're rubbing off uh, billions of organisms um, or pushing them into your skin. So, uh, and so too that when you're uh, having, when you're, the art of meditation is noticing things that you uh, wouldn't normally see because uh, the the gross, not, I don't mean so much bad the, the gross attention that most people are trained in is so far removed from the attention that's required to spot uh, what's really going on in consciousness. So another way of saying this, a very, a very good way of saying this now, is that the art of meditation is essentially... Uh, developing your uh, cognition and your attention into both a microscope and a telescope. Really, essentially, yeah. You'll no- you'll notice that in the meditation, um, uh, the sadhana, the the accomplishment practice of Namjo of the uh, Guru Namjala, of Namjala Rinpoche, that he revealed uh, the figures are holding a thigh-bone trumpet which he, d- he says in the text is both a microscope and a telescope simultaneously. But the more you meditate and the more you apply your mind, you'll see that essentially what you're doing is you're both taking a very, very large view of the universe, of experience, and a very microscopic view, back and forth. Back and forth. Once you know that art, you can stop uh, fretting about you so much and um, relax into the art of uh, microscoping and telescoping, if you wish. Yeah. So uh, I have a little bit of uh, power on there. Let me just read to you. So every day I'd like to make some readings, give some readings from this beautiful book called The Way of Natural History, which is all about the art of mindfulness. And natural history. Now, this just so you can refer back to it. Uh, this is uh, Laura Seawall, who is a visual artist as well as a scientist. And this is a beautiful um, bit of pieces of these beautiful essays. So she says, "I'm a visual scientist by training. My focus on relatedness." began with the, accumulate, with the accumulating data indicating that attention has the power to alter the way we process visual information. I'll read that again. My focus on relatedness, on the how all things are related, began with the accumulating data... I think that's an incorrect sentence in grammar, but uh, began with accumulating data indicating that attention has the power to alter the way we process visual information, and hence, how and what we habitually see. With attention activated, so went the argument connections between simultaneously firing neurons are strengthened. Those that become well-connected are like well-worn paths. If you go over it again and again and again and again, the brain makes connections. If you don't spend much time, it doesn't have time to make connections. This is one of the problems I'm going to counsel you on, uh, I really mean strongly, uh, is if you don't do enough hours of meditation, trained meditation, good meditation, art of meditation, uh, but you do have experiences, the brain simply doesn't make uh, good connections. It doesn't have time, uh, enough time, like learning a language or learning a musical instrument to actually uh, make the connections. You'll have maybe a memory of the experience, but it's not deep. And you'll find that many meditative experiences uh, go in a month or two months or six months or a year. If they're really profound, you might have a, a vague memory of them or a memory of them, but they don't actually cascade way down deep and up through the brain and through the physiology um, unless uh, a lot of attention is brought to that experience. Just like well-worn paths. Those that become well-connected are like well-worn paths easily accessed and easily traveled. So the more that you travel the path the greater your access to it. The rarer the access the only occasionally or rarely will you be able to access that ability. So when people say, well, you know, I did a retreat and how come it's no longer there? Or how come the mindfulness is no longer there? It's because the path is not well-worn. It's just simply not enough hours. The neural paths themselves depend on where we have been looking... And whether we are truly attending. Now that's, that's a very important point. Uh, is are we really looking? Are we really attending to the subject? Or are we pretending to attend the subject? Or are, are we curious? Or do we feel we have to be paying attention? Which means we don't really want to pay attention. So as, as another author says, I'll find it somewhere, it's nice, I've made notes and then I can actually scroll down to the notes and search on certain words, but as he said, the art of attention as he's discovered is really falling in love. If you don't fall in love with your subject, it's not really paying close attention. You might be interested, but you're not really, really interested. So the neural connections aren't very strong the distractions are too many. So, I'd like you to try to notice that when you're on the coral reef or you're walking on the beach, and now you're practicing mindfulness and natural history, are you really interested? And that's a good state of insight where you realize, no, I'm not, actually. I've been told this is fascinating, but am I fascinated? Am I really interested? Or... Am I here to have a good time? But how often am I bored in having a good time? This is a very important point. So, uh, as the Buddha said, it's not sufficient to have mindfulness, you have to have curiosity. He was very, very um, strong on that point. Uh, the word he used is uh, dhamma which means you have to be interested in the phenomena. Uh, it means actually the investigation of phenomena. So if you observe it, it's not the same as investigation. So, so that's, a, that's a good point to say. Are you observing it or are you investigating it? Those are two different... If you watch your breath at the tip of your nose for 20 years, you will have experiences, but you're not investigating. It doesn't lead you anywhere. If you watch uh, a tree grow, um, it's cool, but it may not be investigating anything. Investigation has a question behind it. That's important. What's the question? this would be inter- this would be a little easier let's see you know i am still not I, a book is you know a book is uh, has the ability to go it's over here and uh I'm gonna, it's going to take some time to get used to, to really work with this. Um, yeah, there's, there's, um, there's a term in English. I'll, I'll look it up here. There's a term in English which I want you to practice. And it's called saunter. You know the word saunter? Mm-hmm. Saunter. So, uh, some uh, biologists use the word they saunter along. They've made their discoveries by sauntering along and learning to pay attention by sauntering. And let's look up the word here. I think it's over here. This is why. I think it's right... Actually, this is a great section. I'm going to read this to you. This is one of the most engaging bits of writing about, about learning and mindfulness. Where is that lovely... So what I'd like you to do, uh, it's in my my memory banks, but um, the art of sauntering is not to wander, but to move slowly with purpose. So see yourself, um, number one, having enough mindfulness to spot the ignoring mind. That's a physical sensation, if you can pick it up, is the mind that is sauntering is walking or, or swimming hovering on the coral reef. That's one of the things I love doing, is the the hands underneath or behind and just hanging over a coral reef or sand and sauntering along, which is like a little movement. But um, looking for the variances, now that's an important term that that he, he brings up, is don't always look for consistency in nature. You won't find it. You you will, but it's always broken. So allow your eyes to pick up variances and movements and things that are right that you're looking at. And always know this is a this is a kind of a not a mantra but a saying. Every time I'm in retreat, I say to myself every day, many times a day. I found this very helpful over thirty. 35 years, 40 years, is, what is it I'm not seeing? That's better than, what am I seeing? That comes next. But uh, to saunter along is to say, what is it that I'm not seeing? What million kinds of things have I missed before me? Hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, and of course, seeing. Because uh, I want you to just take this as a contemplation. Every time you're looking, whether it's a plant, whether it's the forest, whether it's the ocean, whether it's with a microscope or a telescope, you're missing 99 or 99% of what you could see. A specialist would be able to spend an hour or two hours telling you what is before your eyes that you cannot see. Have you ever gone into the jungle with a guide? Have you ever done that? It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. What they're seeing and you cannot see. Or a safari. Uh, or diving with a really good diver that can see things they've been at for 30 or 40 years. They're, they're a specialist in fish or in, in uh, sponges or coral. And they're seeing things you cannot see at all. You don't even have a clue that's going on. So before you go and say, what is it I'm seeing, start with, what is it that I don't see? What is it that I don't even know? I saw the gecko moving, but you didn't see the insects. You didn't see, you didn't see why it was moving, or all the other things. Mm-hmm. So the art is to hover. The art is to move along slowly, Is to go for a walk. And, and in going for a walk, the art is to um, let things pop out at you by being in a very relaxed, curious state. Otherwise, you're looking for things that are familiar to your cognition and not opening the door to something absolutely brand new. Then you might say, well, what's wrong with something that you've seen before? Nothing. Nothing. But are you investigating what you've seen before? And then catch those moments where you don't want to see. You simply don't want to see. You want to shut everything off. So another way of saying, uh, another way of of putting uh, the awake mind, if you wish. Are you frying there? or Are you partly frying? Mm -hmm. Cooked and... Do you want to? you want to shift over, someone, or come forward? Maybe Raphael can move over and you can sit there. Yeah. This uh, flaking is due to not paying attention
1: to being fried.
0: Read this beautiful section. You know, I think I'm just going to trace through this book because every every uh, highlight of God is just so beautiful. So this is about this is his this is this fellow's um, ideas, his feelings on his years of of being a natural historian. He says the natural historian is constantly confronted with the peculiarities of place or individual specimen peculiarities. He or she is drawn to the exceptions. Or as one of my best teachers told me, we are attracted to the variance, not the mean, not the average. You don't make discoveries by the average. You make discoveries by the the variations. What is that? Why, Why is that? Anyone who spends a good day in the field will soon realize that birds don't read textbooks. I love that. Birds don't read textbooks, fish don't read textbooks, coral reefs don't read textbooks. Uh, What you think you know from reading in a book, uh, be prepared to find out it's not the way it is today. Or the weather's supposed to be this way? It's not. It's not. How many seemingly well-paid plans for a field season have been disrupted by the first few days' discovery? You go out to look for something, and that's not what you find. You don't find out what you're looking for. You find out something else completely different. So every time you stand on the shore or you're on the boat and you're going to go over with a scuba tank or a snorkel or go for a walk, uh, be prepared for the the new that comes up. So, for instance, you could walk along the beach, but um, could you walk along the beach... Uh, 10,000 times and every time you walk along the beach notice something completely new you've never seen before because your consciousness is fresh. So one of the hallmarks of of real mindfulness, real attentiveness, uh, fresh consciousness, not bored consciousness, not uh, dead consciousness, is ever fresh. I'll come to these themes again and again. But to practice being ever fresh is alive, not zombie meditation, yeah, alive you could go i 've done this in meditation is I picked a path i 've done this a number of times, pick the forest path where i 'm walking for meditation go um, every uh, walk, every um, going back and forth, will be absolutely fresh and never the same it, 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 it can 't be the same forest because it isn 't the same forest, only cognition. Makes it the same. You have to discover that. Only the way you start your walk on the beach or your coral reef makes it the same thing. It's simply never the same. Life, life isn't like that. Oh, low battery. Better, better. Um... I have a colleague who spent a quarter of a century studying one group of birds and coming up with a series of strong predictions that made beautiful sense within a th- theoretical framework. In the 26th year, everything changed. His only comment, quote, "You need to know when to come home." There are general patterns, but they often break down on close examination. And in any case, they are seldom so enticing as the delightful eccentricities of individual atoms. uh, Sorry, individual animals. Each individual uh, fish in the school of 10,000 is an individual. No two are the same. No uh, coral, even though it's the same, is the same. And in there are eccentricities, uh, not consistency. So uh, the human consciousness, unless it's well-trained, is looking for consistency when it goes for a walk. Try to break that habit and look for total newness, total freshness. That means every time you go for a beach walk, there is something you've never seen before. Or a snorkel, or a swim, or a walk in the forest, or a walk across your bedroom, or a walk in the in the in the um, uh, wash in the bathroom—never, ever the same. This sort of thinking doesn't sit well with a culture that expects scientists to be precise, quantitative, and best of all, definitive. You don't want scientists to say, "Well, you know, it could be different every time." You don't want that. You want weather the same, you want climate change estimates to be the same, but actually they're not. Several years ago I tried to interest some public school teachers in a project involving the study of seabirds on an offshore island. The teachers were uniformly excited at the idea of their students doing real research. I've, I've encountered this too. Same, same, same thing he's going to say. Let's go do some real research. Then they asked, the teachers asked, so what will the students discover? I replied, quote, I haven't a clue. This is original research. But that's not how we're trained. We go out, we say, what are we going to discover? We have to go discover something. He's saying, I don't know. Original research is, I don't know. You have to be open to, I don't know. At that point, the whole conversation dried up. People muttered about the importance of learning standards and the difficulty of developing rubrics under situations of uncertainty. One of the more forthright teachers said to me straight out that it was a matter of control. You see, John, it is really important the students don't get the sense that we don't know the answers. They didn't go out and do the research. That's not what they're interested in science. Science is about knowing answers, knowing things. How to test students on answers. He's saying, real research is, let's go out and find out. And it's the art of finding it. It's the approach of inquiry, not the answer. You'll never, ever know definitively anything in science. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. You'll never, ever definitively know how it works. You'll know a lot. You can even make predictions, but you'll always be surprised, especially by a young graduate student who comes along and asks a question that no one's ever asked. It doesn't mean the work before is wrong. It simply means a new view is opened up. I'll um, continue with that. But isn't that something? It's pretty beautiful writings um, in this book. So, try to break the trance of looking for something specific, having to be looking for an answer, having to be looking for something. But, maintaining a love of being attentive... And discovering, and being there with things, that is very natural. But as adults and even children got drummed out. So I'll give you an example today. I saw um, two flamingo tongues today. Now I've never f- seen a flamingo tongue. Now flamingo tongue is a snail about this big, with these beautiful. Uh, square, rectangular patterns, yellow, yellow-black yellow, patterns. Uh, if a... If a cheetah could be shrunk into a snail and the, and the squares in the cheetah defined, this would be a little, shiny cheetah. And it was on a Gregorian, Gregorian um, coral frond, two of them. So you could just go, first of all, I'd never seen them, and went, whoa, I've seen that in a book, so I came back and looked at it. That's amazing. But uh, that's nice, and then I got a name for it. Okay, and I even got the scientific name, which I wrote down, and I have to try to remember. But my question was, what were the two doing there together? Are they feeding? Are they moving? What are they up to? So that's a very good question to ask, uh, in, both in meditation, both in life, and both in natural history, which are all the same, is what is going on and what are they up to? Like a good detective novel. Who done it and what's going on? So the first thing is a name, to give you a hook, but why that form? Why there? Why now? What is it that they're really up to? How do they fit into the coral reef? Why are they found there but not there? So this, so when it comes to your emotions, when it comes to your states, when it comes to your life behavior that you want to change or see different, you can also ask the same question, why that? What's this, and not get into a big story, but why is that found there? Why does it like to be there? Why do these experiences only happen when? So, many people say to me, you know, I had this experience, but I know how it happened. Well, are you curious how it happened? No. But if I meditate, will it happen? No. But you have to know what are the circumstances where you find these creatures living in the coral reef of your mind. Does, Does this make sense? So, in the same way that you go for a float on a coral reef and make discoveries, when you sit in meditation, or you stand in meditation, you walk in meditation, you're making discoveries but you're not trained to see what's happening. That's all. You're, you're not trained as a natural historian of, of consciousness. And it all looks pretty familiar, right? It looks familiar. But actually, as the attention gets very refined, it can be always fresh, what's going on. So training to see on a coral reef, or in a forest, or anywhere, or microscope, is the same kind of training you need to meditate, not to be calm, but to actually unlock what is binding and what is freeing. Otherwise, it doesn't. So you need a couple things, first of all. We'll start with a couple, fa- a couple things. You need to be interested, which is called loving-kindness. When you're not loving and you're not interested, there will be no attention, just so you know that. That's a law. You can write that down. You can make a, we could make a numeric equation. Uh, I like, if we had a blackboard, we'd like doing these, right? So It's science, you know? So uh, I equals A. Interest equals attention, and you can reverse it, it can go A equals I, it's algebraic. Okay? And, you, and, and I want you to actually, instead of going, oh, I'm bad or I'm no good, is I want you to catch the moments where, you're, where not you, uh, your conscious simply not, is not interested. It doesn't really care what's going on, it just wants to be in a blank um, state of something blotto, blanked out, um, not interested. I'm not interested now. And instead of going, oh, I should be interested, just go, oh, isn't that interesting? That's been 20 times the last hour, or that's been 20 times last half an hour. I'm not interested. And feel it. And then feel what it's like when you are interested. Oh. And feel what that's like. And the art is to actually uh, clear your being enough, that that's how it feels all day long. I'm interested. I'm interested in the little things, not the big things. In anything. For hours. Because you were as a child. Where, where did it go as an adult? It's there. simply there. Yeah. So, that's a few things I wanted to bring up to you today. The art of attention, which is not just simply paying attention. It, it needs to get taught. It needs to get um, reinvigorated, re-exercised like a muscle. Otherwise, uh, you might call it meditation, but it's, then it's uh, doing meditation, but not the art of meditation. Art of meditation is basically natural history of the mind. You could say that the, the you could really say, I predict this, I'm. Um, I think even the, I think the Dalai Lama said something similar to this, but I'm not sure, but you could say that that all meditation, the art of meditation, will eventually become the natural history of meditation for Westerners. Um, Not getting away from religion as being important, but the wonderment of natural history uh, as science of the mind, science of phenomena, will, will be a lot of what Westerners do and not necessarily, and as it's happening right now, not to say attracted to the culture of Buddhism or the culture of Sufism or the culture, but actually what is uh, this experience called mind, what is this experience called life. It's much more universal. Nothing wrong with Buddhism, but uh, really when you go to practice meditation, you are practicing the natural history of consciousness, the natural history of phenomena, which is uh, colored and filtered, through every moment of consciousness. What you are is what you study. What you are is what you're interested in. What you are is what you eat. And you eat all day by studying things and learning things. Um, And the awake mind is just naturally curious all day. It's just naturally open and curious and interested all day long it's, just, it's state, just natural state doesn't know any different just likes to explore and likes to know, and likes to find out and likes to discover but wants to be awake not dulled out so by doing this, you're going to find maybe sometimes, and don't beat yourself up. But you're going to find sometimes you go, you're not actually awake. So what do you do? You see if you can bring your your consciousness, your awakeness, or your uh, being, back into an alive, awake state. And that takes training. Eventually, it takes no training. But it takes effort to be alert and awake naturally. And uh, the more you do that, you'll, you'll start to go, I'm really dulled out a lot. That's good, because that means you're noticing those moments. Okay, just a few things this afternoon. So every day, or not necessarily every day, but most days, we'll get together, in the, I think in the afternoon this time, yeah? And uh, combine a, a talk of Dharma with also some... Because we've got the microscopes, and I think you don't. Is that right? Okay, so we got them. And that means we can, we can look at some things that you may never have seen, of which there are a few billion uh, like that. Yeah. Just a few. Uh, and maybe talk a little bit about their importance ecologically. And um, these are the majority of life on the planet, so we're going to look at things that keep us alive. And um, are fa- I find them fascinating. I, I, I set out uh, um, about... I guess about 12 years ago now. Well, it happened many, many years ago, but I discovered on a boat trip uh, with Rinpoche on a retreat, uh, what was it, 1980-something, 82 or something like that, that uh, after bringing up a plankton net in the, in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of West Africa and putting it under a microscope, I'd looked under microscopes before, but never had I looked under at seawater plankton. And I realized I didn't have a clue about life. And when I started reading and started contemplating, I realized, actually, that's the majority of life on the planet, and I know absolutely nothing, nada, about it. And I'd actually studied science, and I knew nothing about it. I was completely ignorant of it, and actually didn't know the names of these things. So uh, I thought, I should rectify that. So for the last 12 years, I've devoted a lot of my time, um, and I find it getting deeper and deeper. I love it is rectifying the situation, which is, I'd like to know what the, what the majority of life is doing, uh, which tells me about what the minority, called us and birds and mammals and trees, what they're up to, because what the little folks are up to uh, determines a lot, if not the majority, of what the big folks are up to. And one of the things it's told me is that human beings uh, are, are not even human beings. They're preoccupied with things that are actually not very um, preoccupiable, nor are they really necessary, because you're not in control. So, I'll just let you know that. You're not in control. So, give it up. You're not in control. They are. You're not. But you have a responsibility to find out. And by finding out, you'll become awake. And uh, that means you have to let less, less busy work trying to be awake. And they can go about their business uh, helping you be awake. So you, you don't need to spend all this struggle. You just need to let them, um, um, uh, let them do what they do. And then you'll go, wow, it's awake. So anyways, more on that topic later. Any, any questions on that before we go take a look upstairs and... Just do a little exploration? Yes?
1: Just because you refer to depth. I, depth. Mean, I mean, I read, maybe I, I read that into what you said, but yeah. but growing curiosity interest. you go deeper. You get to know something mm-hmm. more. So rather than just superficially going all this way, you're kind of going and penetrating more and more through exploring and discover.
0: If you take one thing on a coral reef that you're interested in, one snail one coral and you were to spend a year with it or two or three you would have to then study the fish the rocks the ocean the ocean chemistry you would start branching out because you can't understand that snail without understanding what it eats the chemistry of the ocean uh... the genetics and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. So it says by studying one, you study all. Uh, the same way in, in meditation, by studying the mind, you get it all. Um, studying one phenomena leads to all. But most people give up, they, they simply give up. It, it gets boring, like breath. I know very few people who've ever spent the time studying breath, as described in the ancient texts, deeply enough to really plummet, um, because they won't give enough time. It gets boring. It gets, and then they get wows, and that gets boring. So it's the boring stuff. It's uh, the the life of a scientist is actually getting knowing that the boring stuff is where it's at. Makes sense. It's the boring stuff of you, which is where it's at, not the exciting meditative experiences. You you really won't go anywhere waiting for exciting meditative experiences. But daily, the experience of the boring stuff that happens every moment is where all of it's found. The mundane. The mundane, and that's where the super-mundane is. In the same way that the coral reef is looking at um, even dead things. tells you about living things. You know, there's people that study, who study all their life, the fecal matter of copepods. They study the feces of copepods, and it tells them all about ocean ecology. They actually look at it and go, wow, it's made up of this, it's made of that. It tells them what copepods eat. And then from there, that goes into genetics. From there, it goes into... Mating and control of ecosystems, and
1: you see.
0: So, um, a good yogin, male or female, is a good natural scientist. That's my experience. Mm -hmm. Every one of them. They're very curious people, that have taken that curiosity into finding out what is afflictive states, what is freedom. You you could really just keep looking at mundane and say, where's the freedom? Where's the freedom? What is freedom? Until it breaks through. But but most people don't have the stamina and the strength for that. Because they're always looking for the wow, like a television show. Or something new on their cell phone or their email. Is there something exciting on the email? So this is this is it. That's that's really where it's found. And that gets very exciting. I'll just tell you one wonderful experience that Raphael and I had, which you'll, when we go up here in a few minutes, you'll see. But um, We were working on a research project, which we've never finished, and I'm not sure we ever will. It's, we bit off something way bigger than we could chew. But uh, we were growing cells at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch uh, in, in flasks, about this big, with growth, ocean growth medium. We put one single cell which is um, about, about, on average, the cells that we were growing were about 25 to 40 1,000th of a millimeter across. They're very small. You only see them with a microscope. Change you can see with your naked eye, if you get really trained to see it. Anyways, we're growing these in the lab incubator and taking them out to see if we have enough cells to look at. Well, after eight days or 10 days, you've got hundreds of thousands of cells. And they're all from one cell, so they're all cloned. clone. Well, wouldn't they be identical? you think so. But because we were spending so many hours looking at these cells, we both came, I think, around the same time to going, oh my God, every single cell in each flask, we could tell the difference between each cell. Each one was an individual cell. There was always something different to see on each cell. That's a single-celled organism, floating in water, and the eye simply had to be trained so much to, for it to, to see so many and be studying them. We weren't just looking, we were studying the shapes, right? We were, we were making a catalogue of its physiological changes internally. So we were doing this every day for years. I mean, off and on for years. What popped out was a revelation, which was 100,000 cells of the same clone. We could see each one was uniquely different. So that's studying the mundane. And by studying the mundane, you come to a revelation, which is staggering. It was staggering. I remember I'm going, I'm blown away. Because clone is a clone, right? Trying to do experiments with identical cells, but we didn't have identical cells, really. Yeah, realizing that here we are trying to have a good experiment, exponential curve, everything you're supposed to do, and yet every cell is actually different, unique. So. Okay. Somebody else had a question. That's it. One more? It's not so much
1: a question. What you have been saying today has just really mm. touched me because you, what you're saying is, is bringing true in some of the, the big things that we are dealing with the kind of work that I'm doing. Mm. What I'm coming to terms with is that it's a lack of connectedness that is making it so difficult to get messages across on climate change. But it's also the issue of trying to, to convey that it's dealing with the uncertainty so the variables that are so difficult for people to embrace, and I keep saying, you deal with variables all day long, but I sense such a fear in most people dealing with variables because it's like we need something that we can belong to and say, I know this, I can That's control right. this. So it's the uncertainty that, that, that creates all these, these barriers that we have to follow them. and I'm convinced. That really dealing with it is creating more connections. Giving people that sense of wonder and that sense of curiosity and you know, breaking down these the silos that we all have. So
0: face. it's very important, I mean I'll do some more reasons. but it's important to understand it's not their fault, it's not people's fault. The school system that we get uh, raised in uh, is not, it was designed, here's my little political spiel so I'll, I'll say it, but, but if you study education, the education system that we know today was developed in the industrial age to fit jobs uh, for uh, clerks, uh, factory workers, uh, administrators, uh, not curious uh, natural historians. So you have to just you just have to kind of have compassion because um, the people that were um, uh, educated at one time were nobility when you started to train factory workers and, and general public uh, the training was to fill jobs but it's not about it's not about curiosity it's about the skills required to do what, it, what the industries require you to do at that given time uh, in society which might be a 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 year period span um, so if you, look at, if you ask about uh, scientists and natural historians that are curious and how they got to be the way they were, you'll find it's usually their childhood or something triggered with a mentor in college or school that was very different than the way they learnt in school. It was for me. It was completely complete that way. But most of school uh, is about answers and road answers and predictability and certainty, not about actually how life is. Doing science is about predictability, to see laws, which is fine. But the exciting scientists are always looking for the exceptions. Not about um, They know that predictability is in, is in nature. But they know that everywhere they turn, they will find out that there's variances. The nature does not follow textbooks. But it does follow textbooks up to a point. And then all of a sudden, when you change your view, you break forth into new territory. Uh, but this is very scary for a lot of people, because it's anxiety-producing. It's anxiety-producing. Um, so you may want... It's a very good... Thank you for that, because it's gotten me up. But when you look at why you're bored, or why you're, you're turned off and not interested looking and observing and being attentive, you will find out underneath that it's actually anxiety. It's the anxiety of, this is not bringing me love. It's not bringing me a feeling of satisfaction. Because we're not trained that way. Not trained to actually dwell with something for a very, very long time. We want predictability. Even, give an example, if we take out a certain part of your brain, it's about side of the pin, uh, you will come back... Most people, if they come back to their house and their house has been robbed, they'll feel a really weird sense in their body that things aren't right in them. They, they have been violated. They have been knocked out. They have been... You know, I remember when I lost my first bicycle. It was a funny feeling in my body. I know I've misplaced it. I, I know it's not stolen. I just put it in the wrong place. And I remember going through this for about 12 hours until I realized... Actually, it's stolen, and I put it there. But but, but part of me was missing. So if there, uh, some people who've had a stroke or damaged with certain part of the brain, I can't remember if it's here or here. But uh, they they will not have that at all. They can wa- You could remove everything from their home, and they feel totally comfortable. They sit down in one chair and go. Hmm. It wouldn't matter at all. Not because they don't care. They simply have no uh, area, there, there, there's nothing wrong with everything changed. So uh, there, there are, uh, if you want, not modules isn't correct, but, but mapping of the brain for most people that are looking for things to be the same, not different. We're designed neurologically that way to pick up the thing that goes across the window, the something that jumped up out of the petri dish over there, um, the change in wave motion, the change in light, do you understand? We're, we're geared that way, but we're not geared to be with something that's repetitive and stay with it. And there's nothing repetitive ever, as it turns out. There, there isn't anything that ever repeats itself the same way. Not one wave is ever the same, not one day is the same. So what you're dealing with is you're dealing with people that are very frightened and dealing with the way they've been educated, not the way that they could be educated. Okay. And try, trying to change uh, people with poli- policy uh, is, is difficult um, because of... Um, well, that's another talk altogether. <laughs> but find out in your being why you're like that too. Find out in, in your being why uncertainty is, is anxiety-provoking, why you want everything right, you know? Like a 14-day holiday should be full of sun and calm, or the weather on the East Coast of the United States should be a certain way. It wasn't this year. It cost, what, $60 billion? That's the allocation, which is probably half of what it should be, or a quarter. We don't know. We simply don't know. But you can predict one thing. You don't know, and and variability. And are you going to live like that, or are you going to live in a predictable world and suffer every time the prediction doesn't work? Imagine every time you break down and cry, Raphael, when the coffee isn't the way you expect it to be. No, the, the, fact, the fact is, is there's nothing but variation. We know that, right? You can have the same coffee, ground with the same grind setting, in the same machine and the next one comes out completely differently. And you try to figure out why. Because the universe is highly variable. But you try to take all the variables away, you get pretty close, but then all of a sudden the surprise happens, right?
1: Surprise
0: And the surprise is where you make the discoveries. So the only predictable thing is high unpredictability. People don't want to live that way. But it's not freedom. I mean, high living in a world of uncertainty, which is very, very joyous, demands a level of, matu- of emotional maturity. A tremendous amount of emotional maturity. It doesn't mean you go around and make a mess of things, like you build, build a house, you know, say, say you're a client. So the wall's in backwards. So we put it in... Uh at uh, 22 degrees, it's supposed to be 45. <laughs> so, what's the problem? That's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the point is if the wall goes in differently, can you swing with it emotionally and do something with it? Right? Can you actually know that there's a solution, there's a possibility, everything? That within a, um, a structure that's not what you expect, there will be all kinds of infinite potential. For, for wonder and interesting things. Or not. This, is, this takes a lot of emotional maturity to be able to do that. Or, no, take out the wall and put it back, put it the right way. <laughs> you know, but, but it takes a lot of emotional maturity to be able to uh, maintain that state naturally without breaking down emotionally all the time because it doesn't fit the model that you expected. I mean when Laurel, you know, when Laurel said, should we really do this retreat? I said, why? She says, because the weather can be unpredictable this time, it could be absolutely gorgeous. Could be absolutely beautiful. It often is. But I don't know. I said, let's go for it anyways. Otherwise, it's always, what's safe? And then you could go when it is safe, right? When it is perfectly fine, and find out you have two weeks of awful weather. Because you don't know. So people that live that way are trying to stack up the universe in a way that they can't. You can stack it up, but what are you going to do when it rains for five days? Are you going to mope? Or are you going to make it incredibly interesting? This this is the emotionally mature being that can turn what would appear to be a difficult situation into a marvelously creative good situation after you can't do anything about it. When the engine on your motorboat breaks down and it's broken down, then you need to get creative. You do. You need to get creative. Instead of going, we blew the day, or we blown the week, or... Or, we didn't go to Mars, we went to the Moon. Therefore we blew the whole Mars mission by going to the Moon. Well, let's get off of the Moon and let's go explore. What you might discover is that you find all kinds of Martian rocks on the Moon. Better than you did on the Mars. I don't Get the idea? So we go take a plankton sample out there, and we may find that we're looking for something, but we find something very different. Isn't that wonderful? You might not get your thesis finished, but that could be uh, a major discovery. Most major discoveries have come because somebody spotted a variance that nobody could see before. That's how it happens. Hours and hours and hours of looking and someone goes, there's, not, there's something bugging me here but I don't know what it is. Or, there's no, and, and someone's saying, no, that's normally the way it is, and someone's saying, actually, I don't think so, and having the guts to say, I don't think so. And that's in the mundane. Something's popping out in the mundane. Okay, just a few. So every day will be a few ideas about liberation but, uh, and the art of natural history. And natural it should be, not pretend. Natural. Relax, natural, having fun. doesn't have to be... Uh, oh, oh! Not another gecko. Oh. Yeah, aren't they something? Well, anyways, let's share the merit by this powerful activity. May it lead to the cessation of suffering for all beings. He doesn't say, hungo too. Idante punikamong asawaki wa hangho tu, idante punikamong aswaki wa hangho to. May all beings be well and happy and may all beings be established in a continuity of freedom.